You know the day destroys the night Night divides the day Try to run, try to hide This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. Before we bring on our friend Doug Otto, we'll want to remind you that at Superbook, we're changing the game. Win some money this season with Superbook Sports, the most trusted name in sports gambling, with a direct line to Las Vegas. And now, when you use the promo code Mile High, you score up to $250 with their first bet bonus, and that means win or lose, Superbook will match your first bet up to $250 with the promo code Mile High. It's easy to do. Download the Superbook Sports app, enter that promo code Mile High, and you'll get $250, courtesy of Superbook Sports. Visit Superbook.com for terms and conditions. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Michael Malone won his 400th game when the Nuggets toppled the Bucks. 401 might be a little harder tonight with Nikola Jokic sitting out against the Oklahoma City Thunder. But joining us now is the uh, uh, the OG of My Life Sports. I mean, literally. The only one guy here that's been through all of it, and that would be our friend Doug Ottawill, who has put together My Life Sports magazine now for almost 25 years, or you know, seasons as we call it in sports. Uh, Doug, thanks for joining us. What's up, man? How you doing? Uh, we're doing good, and and obviously we know that the, the Nuggets are near and dear to your heart. One has to simply pick up any issue of My Life Sports magazine and get your column and notice how big of that's been a part of your life. For Michael Malone, let's compare real quick at 400 wins. Uh, there, is, there is time, but obviously it seems almost a foregone conclusion that he will pass George Carl and Doug Moe and become the winningest coach in Nuggets history, and it won't take that long to do it. But when you think of the way Michael Malone started as head coach, and evolved yeah. from the guy he was then to the guy he is now. What do you think's been the biggest change? Well, I think, and, and I think that is really kind of a great place to jump off because in my mind, the one, the one quality of Michael Malone is that I think that he has greatly improved as a coach. And, and I think especially over the last three seasons, um, I just think that he, um, you know, he, and, and I have not always been a Malone guy. I mean, you know, you mentioned columns. If anybody were to look back at some of my columns, I'm sure there's been times where I've said Michael Malone's not the guy to get the, the nuggets to the NBA title. Um, and yet he did. So I think that he's grown a ton as a coach. And I actually, uh, as I watched him last year in the playoffs, I thought that he evolved. I thought that he, he got less stubborn. Um, he was a guy that was very intent on being um, a depth coach. I mean, he, you know, I, I know in the regular season, you, you really do need to go nine and 10 sometimes, but I thought he did a lot, uh, maybe too much of that in the playoffs. Not last year, obviously, but the, the seasons previous. Yes. Agreed. Um, but I think he also like, he, he kind of let go of this. You can't play rookies. I mean, I thought, you know, um, Christian Brown was a significant contributor last year. And, and I, I don't know that Michael Malone would have, would have treated him that way two years before that season. Um, so I don't know. I just, I think that he's grown. I, I think that he's matured as a coach and I, you know, there's, there's been times where I've really been critical of Malone, but uh, it's pretty hard to be critical of what he did last year and, and what he's doing this year, I think. I agree with you completely, and uh, I, I would also point to the idea that while he wasn't the worst offender, he was a bit of a referee baiter for a long time yeah. and was yeah. getting thrown out of games. And I'm, I'm not saying that never happens anymore. It happened earlier this year in Detroit, but 
it, at the Philly, he does pick his spots. He wasn't going to get thrown out in Boston recently, but getting right. thrown out in Detroit is probably a different deal. But I remember a game a few years back where uh, they're playing in Los Angeles against the Lakers, and and he got thrown out. And it, I, I guess it happened this year, but it was it was in Detroit this year back, back then, and Jokic got thrown out too. And yep. I, I thought, you know, regardless what the sequence was, he he couldn't get thrown out of that kind of game. And I, I think he's right. much less uh, quarrelsome when it comes to uh, getting on the officials. And I see the Nuggets now as a team responding by getting on the officials a lot less. And that very much includes Mr. Jokic, who used to be a bit of a referee baiter himself. Yeah, I think you make a great point, Sandy, because, you know, Jokic, I think if I had to be critical of him in some of his earlier seasons, even though he was very good and kind of starting to get into that MVP conversation, it's that he did have a reputation as a whiner and he didn't get calls. Um, and I think I, I, I would say this and, and speaking specifically um, of Michael Malone, I'm I'm fortunate to uh, be an invited guest of my mom who's had Nuggets season tickets for oh boy since the early 90s. And her seats are relatively close to the Nuggets bench. And, and I get to watch Michael Malone's interaction both with referees and with players. And I would say, just from a sheer observation standpoint, that interaction is drastically different now than it was in his first few seasons with the Nuggets. He was a temper tantrum guy. He didn't know how to talk to them. Right. I see him now. They have a lot of good conversations. And I, I would also say he gets his calls because of that now. I think so. Um, he, he, he knows how to petition. And I think that's a skill that is, you know, it's got to be acquired, and it's it's not just that you learn it all of a sudden. But I think that that NBA officials um, over time grow to respect the guy, and and you do develop relationships. But you can see that. I mean, you can see how he talks to them. And the other thing that he does that, that's kind of in the same vein is, you know, he used to be the king of the uh, of the anger timeout. Yes, you know, yes. It, <laughs> the rage timeout. Yeah, yeah. good point. If, if his team wasn't playing, didn't have a couple good defensive possessions or if somebody did a bad turnover, he'd call timeout and it wouldn't matter what the game situation was or how badly they might need those timeouts down the stretch. He'd lose his mind and call timeout so that he could throw a temper tantrum with his assistant coaches before the timeout. And he will do that occasionally, but he doesn't do it in – costly opportunities. And I think, you know, those are things that, you know, he's, he's just matured as a, as a coach, but they really do, you know, they can cost you or gain you one or two wins every season. And I think that that matters when you're a championship quality team. That's a really good point because I I think Sandy and I over the years have, have kind of made that similar argument that Malone at times was, maybe allowing emotions to to dictate some of these things. And I think perhaps that's it. You know, the idea that the championship, especially it, he changed the way he coached kind of in the latter third of last season, where he let off the gas a little bit and started to understand a little bit better that 
You don't necessarily have to treat all 82 games the same. It's okay if you don't necessarily win certain games. You can kind of structure it. And, and that part's fascinating. What you talked about about Christian Brown with, with rookies, allowing these guys to earn their minutes no matter where they stood. With You saw that with Brown's ascension. You saw that uh, with Bruce Brown's ascension to an extent, too. You know, you think about the play Bruce Brown played in the playoffs. wasn't deployed like that all year long. It, it evolved over time. Oh. Then you talk about the timeouts, the management with referees. All those things were probably necessary. And then maybe the best thing for Michael Malone is they were immediately validated with the title and everything that yeah. comes with that. And it's almost like we're talking today about a different coach, not since the, the first day he was here, but maybe since even two, three years ago. And uniformly, I think he's better. I don't think there's a part of uh, Michael Malone's game that has gotten worse. I think he's gotten better yeah. across the board. A hundred percent. And I think you make a great point with his relationships with players and how he handles guys and how he views and distributes minutes. Because one of my criticisms with him, and I was, I was always very, uh, I guess, concerned might not be the right term, but I, I was always wondering if his star players actually liked him. And, and we're, you know, we're in a weird era where players dictate, you know, you, you look at the Milwaukee Bucks situation and, you know, the, Players can run a coach out of town, especially if you have anybody that's any good. And when you're talking about the Nuggets, you had Nicole Jokic and Jamal Murray. And um, I know that now we know that that relationship with their head coach is good. But I often wondered if it wasn't in some of his earlier years with those guys because he was so moody. And, you know, if they'd have if they'd have a bad game or if um, the team lost ugly, he'd throw anybody under the bus. Yeah, he would, and he did it too much uh, back in the day. And it, it was uh, – I, I can't count or even attempt to estimate the number of times, and this was years ago, when they'd lose a game and he'd say they quit. And yeah. how yeah. many times can you say that? Uh, and and it was a large percentage, seemingly a large percentage of the games they lost. And he come up after the game and say, "Oh, we quit tonight." You know, and I'm like, "Really? You're you're going to that well over and over and over again? You can't you can't do that." I will give him this though, and it, it, this again was something that happened a, a few years ago. But I thought in this case it was a good thing on the practice floor, and this again not a year or two back. This is six, seven years ago when Jokic is still developing. And Jokic himself was more moody back then yep. too. And during yeah, a practice session when he wouldn't run back on defense, Malone had occasion to throw him out of practice. If you're not going <laughs> to run back on defense, we we don't need you out here. And, yeah. and I thought, yes, it's possible that he might have overdone it, but I thought that was good for Jokic and good for the team at that point that he did draw a line. Now, it, I, I had the same questions you did, uh, especially the year they uh, lost to Phoenix, which right. was two years ago. In the sweep. And they where, got where, swept where, out. Where Jokic also lost his cool. And Jokic right. lost his cool and got thrown out of the last game. And I almost thought that maybe part of getting thrown out was a kind of uh, a, a certain equivalence 
uh, when it came to a gesture toward the head coach. <laughs> that, yeah. You know, you're, you're putting me through all this. I got to carry the team. And uh, that was another series where there were suggestions made that the Nuggets weren't really playing hard. And all it was is they were outclassed. They were completely yeah. outclassed. And he was outcoached, too. Uh, and that, that, that Jokic ended up getting thrown out. I almost thought it was it was by design that he got thrown out, and and that's when I wondered about the relationship. But that's probably the last time I've wondered about that relationship. Yeah, exactly. And and, and I mean, you know, you're right. Jokic was a much moodier, much less mature player back then. Yeah. But I think it went hand in hand. I mean, I, I you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. But but to Sean's point, that everything that's that's evolved has been validated by winning a title. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think the three of those guys, Malone, Murray, and and Jokic, have really kind of grown up together. And and as True. much as you know, uh, as much as I've been critical of Malone, um, in most of the years leading up to last year, I think that he's sort of. By no means would I ever say, "Oh, Malone read my columns," but so many of the criticisms that I had of him, I don't have those as much anymore. No, and Sean and, and, and I are the same way. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, you talk about players. I mean, Jokic is a good example, but even Michael Jordan, you know, they all have to figure out how to become great. I mean, they they have the tools, they have the the skills, the athleticism, or whatever. But we don't. We rarely ever talk about a a, a player in the same way his rookie or second year as we do his fifth player or fifth year, you know, if you're Jordan or Jokic or Shaq or Kobe. Yeah, right. Well, why can't a coach grow? You know, people talk about players growing and improving all the time, but they never talk that way about coaches. And I think you have, you have to give, um, you know, Cronky sports a little bit of credit in, in Michael Malone's evolution. Yes. We as fans or media or whatever often say this isn't the guy. You gotta get somebody different. You got this, you got this worldly talent in Nicole Jokic, and you got a nice, you know, one one B with with uh Jamal Murray, and this coach isn't the guy to get him across the finish line. I mean, I said that, I definitely said that. But in retrospect, the patience for Malone and the patience for the relationship between those three guys. It, somebody had to see it and somebody had to let it grow. And, and you had to give the Cronkies some credit for that um, because it would have been easy to say, Hey, we've got an MVP candidate and this guy is not getting them out of the first or second round. We got to right. move on. Give right. them, and, I, and they, didn't. They, yeah. they didn't. And I think it's important too. We're talking about the nuggets with Doug Ottawa, but I think you, you got onto a larger point. The, organization there, and I mean the overarching organization, KSE, has really done a great job with that because all you have to do is look at their roommates in the Colorado Avalanche. You could have made the same argument about Jared Bednar. Right. After one year. Right. Who also has evolved as a coach, and that patience has paid off with now Bednar being their winningest coach in their history by a notable margin and a title. And the same arguments were made, especially in the early going, like, well, we grabbed this guy because we kind of needed someone. Patrick Wad left us in the lurch, and so we promoted him, and we'll see. Michael Malone was unceremoniously dumped uh, after a minimal amount of time at Sacramento. They identified the talent and had the patience, and they've been rewarded in both cases. And that's actually a system thing. And I I guess that'd be my last question for you, because Sandy and I have talked about this with both of these teams. 
Both of these teams, if you look at the way the coaching has been handled, it's similarly. And the other thing is the culture within the team with regard to money, because we know that money can be a problem. You go up and down the Nuggets payroll and the Avalanche payroll, and you go look and see who makes the most money and makes the least money, and you put in an order. And by and large, despite the fact that you're living in a world of free agency and timing of when guys get their contracts, the best guys get paid at the highest level, and the other guys don't. You don't have a weird imbalance in the locker rooms because somebody that's underperforming happened to be a free agent at the right time and makes way more money. They have focused on building those cultures even within a salary cap league, and that's remarkable because it's happening with the Avs and the Nuggets. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the you know the, the model, and it's not a, a novel concept that I came up with. I have seen a lot of people write about it, but the Nuggets were really built the same way that the Golden State Warriors were built when they were sort of reigning the NBA. I mean, the the idea was that, that they they drafted well, they paid their own guys, they made their stars the guys that they they believed in and brought up through the system, and they added pieces here and there, but they never went crazy, with the exception of maybe Kevin Durant, which obviously wasn't a long term thing. Um, that that really made the core of that Golden State team, and really. If you look at it, and even if you look at the the time arc of of the process to when success materialized, it's very similar. And I think it it, it does go to show. And and look, there's different ways to skin a cat. I mean, you can always you can always rent a title. You can always go out and and buy. And and I mean, you know, that's bad. That's been the lament of Nuggets fans forever. Oh, you know, it's a three superstar league. You got to have three superstars. And if you don't make a big trade at the deadline, you're not going to win a title. Well, they stayed with their process, and they did win a title. And I think that's a, it's a good point, especially when you look at it compared to the Avalanche. Very, very similar methodology in terms of how they bring their guys up. And, um, and when there is a, a cultural issue, you know, like you look at Matt Duchesne, they, they make a decision and they move on. Or Bones Highland. And I think, yeah, exactly. There, there's, there's these little examples that, that – sort of showcase what their overarching philosophy is. And uh, lo and behold, it's resulted in a couple titles here in the last two or three years, you know. Go figure, right? A sensible structure, consistently executed, actually results in positive things. How about that? <laughs> it's a it, terrific. It's a, great, it's a great message, really. It is. I, I mean, as, as sports fans or media or whatever, we are so impatient. And I fall into this trap all the time. Uh, I, you know, actually, you know, you know what the point here is, is that if the, if the Broncos would have given it, Daniel Hackett, eight and a half years, he would be great. Mm, there's other structural <laughs> issues not, there. He that. is Doug Ottawell, of course, the editor of My Life Sports Magazine. You can follow him on social at D Ottawell, O T T E W I L L. Look for the uh, the uh, My Life Sports Magazine as you see right now, and I call Jokic on the cover, and then the new one is uh, in process. I will tease more than uh, no more than that whatsoever. But Doug, always good to talk to you. Thanks so much for your insight on this. Obviously, being at so many Nuggets games over the years, uh, your perspective is a lot of value. Thank you. You bet. Anytime, guys. All right. Thanks, Doug Ottawill there, Mile High Sports Magazine. And, and and it is really, when we talk about what we've seen from the Broncos, and we talked about at the beginning of this, this show, the idea of structure, the way that the Niners are set up, the way that the Chiefs are set up, why they've had success, and what the Broncos are doing that is different than that. What the Broncos are doing is a is a methodology that's going away. What the Denver Nuggets were doing, and Doug, I think, rightly tied it back with what Golden State, they're near the front of a movement. The Broncos are at the tail end 
of a movement. Generally, one is better than the other. We'll find out. But we know that in recent cases, the Avalanche have a cup, the Nuggets have a ring. Of course, Broncos have had theirs, but it's been a while. And it will be interesting to see how that all shakes out. But some of that is all based in the way you build a structure, you execute a structure, and you buy into your leaders. And that makes today really interesting because we have our Wellness Wednesday with Dr. Rick Perea coming up. So an opportunity to talk about all those sort of things, how they relate to sports and how they relate to you. Uh, what's on the docket today, Sandy? Well, we're going to talk a lot about the two championship games played last weekend and uh, the psychology in both games that was so fascinating. And as Dr. Priya pointed out, with respect to Detroit and San Francisco, it wasn't like Detroit got slower and San Francisco got faster during the halftime intermission. The physical aspects, strictly physical aspects of the game did not change, but the whole tenor of the game seemed to turn on seemingly slight, perhaps perceived at the time, in real time as being insignificant, changes. And they were all from the neck up. It wasn't like the 49ers got faster, but if you watch the game, as I know you did a second time over, Mm -hmm. their pass patterns were run more crisply in the second half. Fred Warner was a sideline to sideline linebacker in the second half. He was not that in the first half. And if Dan Campbell did anything wrong, Dr. Rick Perea said he spoke in an ill-advised way after the game. In Dr. Perea's opinion, there was nothing particularly wrong with the way Dan Campbell coached the game. But Rick Perea believes that Dan Campbell, after the game, may have done some damage in the way he spoke about the future of the Detroit Lions. Well, we will find out about that soon enough because uh, that's coming just around the corner. I will step aside. We're going to do on Wednesday because, uh, you know, just because my first two letters of my last name begin with DR does not mean I'm a doctor as much as that would be, you know, my parents would have been happy about that. But this is what they got. Uh, Dr. Rick Perea joins Santa Claus for Wellness Wednesday next on My Life Sports. And I feel I show the response. I feel nice. I show the response. Welcome once again to Wellness Wednesday, our weekly checkup from the neck up on Mile High Sports Radio and in podcast form, of course, at milehighsports.com. It's Wellness Wednesday. I'm Sandy Clough, and to my left is Dr. Rick Perea, the noted performance psychologist. We'll talk more about uh, uh, what is going on with Rick in just a few moments, but uh, we come off an NFL championship weekend AFC and NFC championship games. Fascinating. Uh, To the uninitiated, Dr. Perea, explain Mm -hmm. the transformation of both the Detroit Lions and the San Francisco 49ers from the first half to the second half on Sunday in Santa Clara. Yeah. Well, here's a way to illustrate it. Let's put it this way. When both teams went into halftime, 
they nothing changed physically. They're still the same speed, the same size. Nobody got shorter, slower. Everyone stayed the same physically. What changed is from the neck up. And that's the adjustments that were made by the coaches. That's neck up. The adjustments that were made by the players to come out and execute the plays. And then the mentality of that you believe you have a chance to win. Versus in the first half, it looked like the 49ers, they had not given up, but they looked confused and they looked apathetic. Like, whoa, what, what's going on here? And they were going along for the ride. Detroit was taking them for a mental ride, and they were going along with it. Once they got into halftime, they had a chance. And the way – a lot of people probably know this, but what happens is when you go into halftime and everybody meets with their position coach, and it's all segregated. You know, linebackers are with linebackers, coach, defensive line. Then the defense comes together. Then the offense comes together. And then the team comes together – to hear the coach say what he's going to say going forward. But in that time, there was adjustments that were made by the 49ers, and I believe the lack of adjustments were made by the Detroit Lions. And that, to me, was the difference. Explain to me, though, why a team that was ahead 24-7 to has to make any adjustments. Things are going great. Because you know the other team is going to make adjustments to what you've been doing so you can't expect them to come out and keep playing that same game plan and with that same level of intensity. Explain to me individually yeah. what happened with Fred Warner, who is a great football player, maybe the best off-ball linebacker in the NFL. Mm -hmm. In the first half, he was one of those 49ers who looked lost, yeah, confused. He was getting beaten consistently. Right. Detroit was doing anything they wanted to do. Mm -hmm. on offense the yep. Lions were in yeah. that first half in the second half I see Warner flying around sideline to sideline north and south covering everybody and he's a one-man wrecking crew right. seemingly yeah. I mean he had company it wasn't sure. just one there were 10 other guys who seemed equally inspired what gave them the belief it wasn't a Kyle Shanahan Newt Rockney style speech at halftime right as the 49ers themselves said in the second half, there, yeah. were, there were no inspirational speeches. Uh, maybe a player or two spoke up. Sure. And Warner might have been one of those guys. He's right. one of the leaders. But explain with Warner how he could be so bad the first half and so good and dominant in the second half. Well, I think it, it, you, we can trace it back to Ben Johnson, the offensive coordinator of the Detroit Lions, who I know really well. He was with us in Miami as a quality control guy how quickly people can ascend in the NFL these days. I guess days. so, and yeah. that was seven years ago, and we right. talked about this. I didn't even notice him when I was down Exactly. There. And I was in the practice. Absolutely. You were there. You were watching practices. and Didn't notice him. Not a lot of people didn't noticed notice him, him back then. And so in seven years, he's come a long way, and I'm happy for him. He's really good at meticulous, meticulously setting up a game plan and executing it. What they were running, they were running a lot of ISO and a lot of power in terms of their running right. game. Fred Warner is really more of an athletic sure. than, a, than a downhill run stopper, per se. He can run from sideline to sideline. He's very athletic. He can cover tight ends. And so when he was faced with a run-stopping scheme, it took him a little bit out of his element, and then he was guessing. But yet in the second half, Detroit – 
start they changed and they, they you know fred could do his thing he could roam from sideline to sideline um drop back in coverage but yet he was still filling gaps a and b gaps mm-hmm. when they were running the ball so he was more um puzzled and i think the whole 49ers defense was by ben's game plan coming in and, and it was masterful they were getting sure it gosh, was the first half. i can't crack. remember a play that didn't work right yeah they were in running the, the ball half. at will and um but then the 49ers made some adjustments and again i i don't think the detroit lions made the adjustments they needed to make to anticipate the changes the 49ers were going to make brandon Ayuk was talking after the game of course once yeah. they had won about the lady book uh, yeah, the, the, ladybug, the ladybug yeah. that landed on his shoe yeah. in the pregame warmups. Okay, uh, after they had won, that was easy to do. Had they sure. lost, maybe not so easy. Probably wouldn't have told the story. But the psychological effect, and maybe you can explain it, of that play that was frankly kind of a fluke play. It was Purdy overthrows him near the goal line. It hits the defender's face mask and bounces right into. Ayuk's hands. In fact, I wasn't sure Ayuk had been touched down. I thought it was a touchdown at too. first glance. And of course, they scored on a pass to mm-hmm. Ayuk a few seconds later to make it 24 17. And that seemed to change everything. San Francisco's win seemed inevitable after that play. Sure. Um, the great baseball executive Branch Rickey used to say luck is a residue of design. Yeah. Was this an example of that, or was it just pure luck that the overthrown pass happened to hit the opponent's face mask and bounce into the arms of the receiver? Well, I'll even go a step further. It's science. I mean, when you train the brain and you give the brain information to digest and you actually change the neural pathways the brain will act accordingly. And I'll tell you this, the brain has what we call neuroplasticity. And that means the brain has a capacity to change. Neurogenesis means the brain can generate new pathways. Neuropruning means the brain will prune away what we no longer use. So let's take Ayuk's postulation that the ladybug did have an effect. So in fact, if he if that did happen and he believed that. He, he seemed to believe it. And he seemed to believe it. Then he's saying, wow. I'm destined for good luck. I'm destined for good things. I'm destined. So now he's telling himself that the brain is creating a new pathway along that line to help him believe it. It reminds me of Ryan Harris during that Super Bowl season. He called me at one in the morning and said, Doc, I can't go to sleep. I've never played in a Super Bowl. And I said, you're already a world champion. And he goes, what? I said, you're already a world champion. All we got to do is go out and play it. And so what he did he did an affirmation that night before he went to sleep and said, I'm already a world champion and visualized it. And then the next day it came true and, and everything he visualized. So when you put a thought into the perceptual value, the neural pathway of the brain, we can create new neural pathways that influence how we think, feel, and behave. So essentially he was thinking, feeling, and behaving according to the ladybug and look what came true. Now, I'm not saying everybody that does that is going to have that come true. But I can tell you this, when we train the neural pathways, we have evidence to show that those things will tend to happen if you truly believe they have a possibility of happening. I have suggested this week that even if you believe Dan Campbell is deserving of some criticism, Mm -hmm. it's not for the reasons that people generally think that he went for it on fourth down too much. 
I mean, the last touchdown they scored was on a fourth down play, yeah. so it didn't always fail. Sure. And at the end of the first half, it's 21 to seven. Yeah. They're three yards from making it 28 to seven. He doesn't go for it. Right. He kicks the field goal. I thought that was a mistake. Mm. What about you? Yeah. You know, it's, it's easy to second guess. But he always goes for it and make the percentages but, work. Yeah. You have to do it all the time. If yeah. it's fourth and three, fourth and two, fourth and one, you're going. Yeah. Kansas I'm, City did that. Yeah. Successfully. I'll, First I'll, series of the game they went for yeah. in their own territory. For me, I will never second guess a play call based on its success or not. A play call at its time of value is based on down and distance and tendencies. And when you base it on that, you go with that. Whether it works or not, you can't control that. The thing that I have an issue with Dan Campbell okay. is is what he said after the game. All right. That's where I really have right. the issue with Let's him. Hear be, it. Because, you know, he's a he's great leader. He's inspirational. He's motivational. And that's all been wonderful. Everybody's talked about how he's changed the culture, right? And that's wonderful. But to me, he put his foot in his mouth when he said after the end of the game, you know, it's going to be twice as hard to get here next year. What? What? What what is where does that statement come from? The laws of probability? Absolutely not. How does he know it's going to be twice as hard? It may be easier next year based on variables. Okay, to say that that that's football. Speak. I agree with you. That seemed like the wrong thing to say. Yeah, the right thing to say was we had a great year and we plan to be back. Absolutely, leave it at that. And we'll take the next step next next year. Yes, there's we'll, another step this or year two to take. Yeah, this year we knocked on the door. Next year we're kicking it in. That's Bum Phillips, right? Exactly. The but there's coach speak that says, "Well, it's tw it's always twice as hard to get back." <laughs> that is based on how no, do you quantify that? <laughs> you can't. It's based on no mathematics, no probability. It's a very ignorant statement to make, but it's one that a lot of coaches would make. He fell into that trap. And then, you know, the other thing he said that I didn't like is he talked about how he had come in and changed the culture, but that next year they're going to have a target on their back and they're going to be fighting that the whole season and it's going to be a real challenge. They're not going to have the same personnel. And I would say this, you might have better personnel. You might have better personnel next year to reach a higher level. So I think what he failed in is psychology 101. And that is that you don't know the game from the neck up, then don't comment on it. Comment on the game from the neck down and say, you know, we got to get better from the neck up and that's going to help us. But don't make statements that are ignorant because those players, there's some, there's some thinkers in this league. And I'm telling you, a lot of them are players. And so they're going to dissect that and say, wait a minute, coach, don't shoot us down before we even have a chance because I'm ready to go. The rapper Eminem even said, let's go. He's the one that's like, we're, we're kicking in the door of the next step. So that's yeah. the only complaint I have about what he said post-game. And the interesting thing is, and I don't know, every team turns over, even champions turn yep. over. They you are betcha. exactly the same yep. team. And you know uh, from your business, people don't adopt the same psychology from one year to the next. That's but right. you say it could be better. And I thought it was interesting this week. Everybody had Ben Johnson taking the Washington oh, I coaching know. job. I know. And he says, no, yeah. he's staying in Detroit for well, a second straight year. Everybody has him leaving, and he decides to stay. Uh, Dan Campbell certainly didn't account for that. Right. And I would think certainly that decision by Ben Johnson doesn't make him worse off. Right. Makes him better off. Yeah, but he's I staying. Listen to this, Sandy. 
it's not so much that he stayed. He didn't get the job he wanted. Or he didn't get the money he wanted. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll go with that one too. Okay. But I'm telling you this, it was all set up. It yeah. was all set up. And, um, you know, I, I, I got to be careful how much I say here. As you know. I know Adam, you're close to some of the people involved. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'll be honest. Adam Peters is my client, yeah. the general manager for the commanders. And so I know how I advised him because I know Ben Johnson. Right. I know sure. Ben Johnson very well. And you know me. I'm more of an analytical thinker when it comes to promoting an offensive coordinator to a head guy. I think it can be done and it can be successful. But it the the, the two ingredients that most coordinators don't have and ha certainly hasn't been tested as a coordinator is leadership skills yeah. and communication skills. And the ability to be CEO-esque, if you will, many coordinators, look at Josh McDaniels, uh, Matt Patricia, of course. Adam Gase. We can go on and on of coordinator. They were great coordinators, but they didn't have the skill set that was germane and relevant to the head coach position. I'm convinced in 20 years from now, head coaches don't even have to know football. They just have to be great leaders. And we'll leave it to the coordinators to bring all the yeah. football because we have too many head coaches that last two years, three years, four years, and they're fired and teams are spending millions and millions and millions of dollars in these contracts because they don't have success because we don't know how to hire yeah. head coaches with the appropriate skill set. So Ben Johnson didn't end up in Washington for a multitude of reasons. Multitude of reasons. Yes. That's uh, very interesting. And uh, we'll continue. We'll talk about the other championship game, which I thought was equally fascinating, the Kansas City Chiefs and the Baltimore Ravens setting up a Kansas City-San Francisco Super Bowl for the second time in five years. But first, uh, more on my friend here to my left, Dr. Rick Perea, the outstanding performance psychologist who has worked with, as he alluded to earlier, the world champion Denver Broncos back in 2015. He's also worked with the Rockies, and the Rockies are actually pretty good and the current world champion, Denver Nuggets. But most importantly, Dr. P helps middle and high school performers to reach peak performance, whether you're an everyday practitioner at work, at play, or at school. Call Dr. P today at 720-287-0933. That's 720-287-0933. Or look them up at Dr. P at Think One Number 4. U.org. That's think one number for you.org. All right. On to the AFC championship game. And I guess we have to start with Lamar Jackson, mm. who is presumably going to get a second MVP award in the first five years, six years as a starting quarterback. That's a very rare thing. Yeah. Mahomes has done it. Uh, Manning. Uh, won a bunch of MVPs, but I don't think he won two in the first six years. Yeah, uh, You know, it's an extraordinary achievement. Mm -hmm. What happened to him on Sunday? And in fact, in three of the four halves in the two playoff games they were in, he wasn't that good. Right. And his reputation is that in the playoffs, he's not the same guy. Mm. Yeah, and I, I agree with that to a certain extent, but I also let's go back to play calling. When we look about the play calls that were given to him for him to execute, I don't think they took advantage of his skill set. 
Didn't I mean, seem that way, did you, it? You look at Mahomes, and Mahomes has the ability to run to – I mean, gosh, does he put pressure on a defensive line? Because when they have their – we call them rush lanes. Right. And we call – or keep your spokes, and spokes are symmetrical. Um, he puts so much pressure on the defensive line because they if they get out of their rush lanes one little bit, Mahomes will pop through there and either create an extended pass play – or he takes off running, which puts such pressure on the linebackers because do they stay in their drops or do they come up and tackle him? Lamar Jackson is even better than Mahomes in the open field, but yet we didn't see him in those situations where he was taking advantage of the pocket and it collapsing. The play calls were, for some reason, for some reason, out of the context of using his skill set to the best of his ability. So I think that's part of it. But I also do think there is a mental block for him. I really do. I, you know, as you know, I have some clients on that team in, for the Ravens and longtime clients. I mean, seven and eight years before they played for the Ravens. And they're very specific. They say, you know what? This guy plays free and fancy when it's a regular season. And when it's the postseason, the message becomes really big because he's one, he's looked upon as one of the black quarterbacks that's more true to his culture. Let's, I'm going to be really honest with you. A lot of black players don't look at Mahomes that way. They look at him as kind of a guy that's bought into uh, – he's been whitewashed, if you will. But they look at Lamar Jackson as more as a representation of us brothers. And they make the message big, and I think Lamar buys into that, that it's a really big – if it wins here – and he but doesn't, he's not just representing himself. Yes. That's what you're saying. He's representing a whole culture. He's representing a cultural yes. phenomenon. And I think he puts he makes it very big. And that's the opposite of what we teach right. our athletes. <laughs> we tell them to keep it small. Right. Keep it small. And sure. he's making it as big as, as he can. So then he gets frustrated, too. I saw that as well. Well, we saw that. He threw his helmet yes. after he threw the interception into triple coverage. He comes to the sideline, throws his helmet. Down. Right. And and so then that that makes it even that much worse. So I do think it's I think it's play calling. I would say 70 yeah. percent. But there's a 30 yeah. percent in there with Lamar not playing to his potential because he makes it bigger in his brain than it really needs to be. Bill Belichick as defensive coach. Has been famous for years for taking away the strength of the opposition. Yes. Make you beat him doing something you're not comfortable mm -hmm. doing, something you don't like to do. Right. He'll take away your strength. It might be one of your receivers mm -hmm. who's your top receiver, let's say. He's going to take him out one way or the other. He's going to make him a non-factor during sure. the course of the game. Yeah. He's going to design a defense and his defensive game plan uh, for the Super Bowl, the Giants won over Buffalo, is in the mm -hmm. Hall of Fame now. I guess I'm wondering if Steve Spagnuolo, the defensive coordinator mm -hmm. of the Kansas City Chiefs, who beat Bill Belichick's undefeated Patriots yeah. back in 2007 as defensive coordinator of the New York Giants mm -hmm. in the Super Bowl mm -hmm. and has won a Super Bowl already in Kansas City. In fact, he's been part of two. But now the defense is at least as responsible for Kansas City winning as the offense is. Maybe Steve Spagnuolo designed a game plan that in some ways took things away from Lamar Jackson that he likes to do, or that Todd Monken, the offensive coordinator and the play caller, likes to do. Yeah. Maybe it was one of those Hall of Fame game plans. Maybe Steve Spagnuolo's game plan should be in the Hall of Fame. I think Spags did a great job, but I didn't see Spags put a spy on Lamar. So like if he broke pocket, 
He has a spy to, to get him. That That's game planning. This was, to me, he had an overall very effective game plan, but I didn't see something that was extraordinary. For me, it's more about, you know, today's NFL defenses are just not – the defensive coordinators who are leading these teams are not as – fundamentally sound let's say is 25 years ago you know let's take travis kelsey for example why does he get a free release from the <laughs> line of scrimmage every single play you know when i played football sandy you 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 jam that tight end on every play even if he was attached or unattached you jam the tight end why because that'll throw off the timing of the route when you got someone like they utilize travis kelsey so much in off you know, out of speed plays or off schedule, plays. off schedule yeah. plays, yeah. jam him at the line of scrimmage, takes him out of his timing for the route. But nobody does that because you know why? Because they they think, well, we got to be in coverage. We got man underneath zone over the top, right? And they got to adhere to that. And I get I get that. But man, you can pop out even a seven technique and just jam it on on the outside shoulder just to take him off his route that little much. Mm -hmm to mess up the timing. So I think defense in the NFL is at a rudimentary level. It's not as, is, you know, the tackling is so poor. I saw, well, I saw the tackling's atrocious. I saw a tackle in, with the Detroit Lions the other day. Um, and I they're have, famous for that. That is the one flying the ointment all year with Detroit. Yeah. They are one of the worst tackling teams in the league. I had to call my defense coordinator from college and say, coach, did you just see that? I mean, it was, you know, my 15-year-old son, Drake, would have tackled that kid better. So it, defense is at a very rudimentary level, and it's sad to say because I'm an ex-defensive player. It was Kansas City's idea, I think, going into the playoffs that everybody had counted them out. And I guess to an extent that was true – because they had never played on the road in the playoffs yeah. with Patrick Mahomes at quarterback. Mm -hmm. And people, I think, maybe I was one of them, assumed that because they had never played on the road in the playoffs, they would be at a disadvantage. Right. Back to where we started the show. They've turned it seemingly into an advantage, sure. a motivating factor. Even in the pregame the other day, I think there was a little gamesmanship going on with Tucker, the Baltimore place yeah. kicker, fooling around near Mahomes' warm-up area. Yeah. And Kelsey and Mahomes took the tees and took the footballs and tossed them away, and he put them back, and there was a whole – and I think Kansas City took that as a sign of disrespect, and it fueled what they already felt – was a notion out there that they weren't being taken seriously yeah. because they had to play on the road, not only in Baltimore on Sunday, but the previous week in Buffalo. Yeah. And, well, okay, Buffalo Buffalo has its demons. Okay, they won one. But Baltimore, Baltimore's blowing out great teams all year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It was but it seemed like Kansas City had the right stuff from the neck up. And yeah. Kansas City had three points and ten first downs on its final nine drives mm. of the game, and mm. they still won by seven. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think Kansas City, you know, really benefits from their experiences too. They've been in this position several times. The mental side of the game for Kansas City is that 
you know, Mahomes is calm. Mahomes is regulated. I mean, that's something a lot of people don't talk about. He is athletic. He is able to, you know, move the pocket and, and extend plays. But he's so regulated. You you don't see Mahomes get too upset ever and, and too, you know, um, upset on the field, especially. No. Maybe maybe off the field at off times. Off the field on sidelines sometimes. Yeah. But, but, not but on the off. field, he is he's a very regulated player. He's playing on that parasympathetic side of his autonomic nervous system, which is the calm side. And when you have a quarterback that's doing that, then he really has no limitations. And then you add into the athleticism that he has, the ability to to see the field. And by the way, that's all part of being on that parasympathetic side. You know, I mean, your vision is calm. Your thinking is calm. Respiration's down. Very little muscle tension. So I think people don't understand that Patrick Mahomes is a product of science. He's a product that he's able to regulate his anxiety, which puts him his autonomic nervous system on a calm side so he can perform at peak levels physically. It'll be a fascinating Super Bowl to watch the two quarterbacks because they both seem to operate that way. You never see Purdy get excited or seemingly yeah, discouraged. There you go. And the same thing with uh, Mahomes, a rematch from, uh, of course, uh, uh, four years ago at uh, Super Bowl 58. All right, that is our podcast for this week. You can hear us every Wednesday afternoon on Mile High Sports Radio from 530 to 6. We'll see you next time.